Let's pray together. God, we pray that, that you would be our vision, that you would be our true word, that you would be a father as us, as to a child. And God, to, to, for us to know that, for us to experience that, for that, that to be true of us, God, I, I pray that you would just be near and present to us now. As we open your word, God, help us to listen to it, to hear it, that it would become more central and more a part of, of who we are. God, speak to us now by your spirit. Reveal yourself to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can tell a lot about a people by the songs they sing. If you spend any time listening to radio in, in the United States, it's pretty easy to tell what we as Americans are obsessed with. Right? In particular, love and romance, relationship. It feels like every song is about that, no matter what age or what day you lived in. So, for example, take the 1980s. In the 1980s, a, a musical genre was invented, something that had never before been seen or heard by human beings, the monster ballad. Those of you familiar with the 80s, you know the bands in that day, they had really hard names and, and wanted to have really rough reputations, like they did drugs, they looked really hard, their band names were poison, they wanted to, to present themselves as really tough, and yet... All of these bands, in the middle of many of their concerts, had this moment where they turned soft and vulnerable and introspective and sang about love. For example, hear these lyrics from the band Poison from the song Every Rose Has a Thorn. We both lie silently still in the dead of the night. Although we both lie close together, we feel miles apart inside. Was it something I said or something I did? Did my words not come out right? Though I tried, though I tried, every rose has its thorn. Right, what made a band called Poison, who wanted to look really tough, sing songs like that? My best guess is, is bands in that day, uh, most of the bands, they, they cut their hair into mullets and they wore spandex. And if you're going to do ridiculous things like have span, wear spandex and have a mullet, you're going to have to come up with something amazing to talk a girl into going out with you. Right? And this is it, the monster ballad. And so they sang these songs about love, and for a long time it worked, and they got dates, and girls responded, but eventually we all saw through it. After all, there, there's only so much you can do to overcome mullets and spandex, and so eventually that wore itself out, and a new musical genre invented itself, or came in into the 1990s. It was the boy band. And at that point, five grown men began singing and dancing in unison, singing songs about love and romance. All right, the Backstreet Boys, in sync, 98 Degrees. Doesn't matter, they all sang the same thing, they all did the same thing. But after a while, that stopped worrying. Because guys in their late 20s, singing to girls half their age, eventually got to be just creepy. And so that wore itself out, we had to move on from boy bands and, and get younger and younger. And so in the 2000s, we had Justin Bieber who at 14 years old, when he was going to sing about something, what he chose to sing about was love and romance and relationship at 14 years old. So listen to, to some of his, his lyrics from his song, Baby. You know you love me, you know you care. Just shout whenever and I'll be there. You're my love, you're my heart, and we will never, ever, ever be apart. Are we an item? Girl, quit playing. We're just friends? What are you saying? Said there's another, look right in my eyes. My first love broke my heart 
for the first time. And I was like, baby, baby, baby. Mm. Right? That's When a 14-year-old sat down to write a song, that's where he went. Right? It's love, romance, relationship. It does not take long to listen to our songs or our radio and become convinced. We, we Americans are a little bit obsessed with romance and with love and with relationships. It doesn't matter if you lived in the 80s and you had your monster ballad. It didn't matter if you were in the 90s and you had your boy band or if you were the Justin Bieber fan. It doesn't matter if you were a believer or what. You were singing about love, romance, and relationship. You can tell a lot about a people by the songs that they sing. And so that's why when we, all, we open the Psalter, the Psalms, the songs and the prayers of the Old Testament people of God, we can tell a lot about them, a lot about Israel. And it's not just that we can tell a lot about Israel when we look at those songs, we can also tell a lot about ourselves. Because the Psalter is supposed to be our Christian guide to worship as well. And what we should find is that the songs we sing are reflected in the songs that they sang in the Psalms. And yet, I would, I would say there are are two songs that Israel always sang that were on their heart all of the time that, that aren't quite present with us the way they were with them. Two types of songs, two types of prayers. The first one being, being exuberant praise. Right, if you read the Psalter, it, it almost gets weird at points where you shout for joy, you, you clap your hands, where, where you, you reach for the heavens. There's just this exuberant, passionate, joy-filled, energy-driven praise. Right? And those of us in our white American suburban context where we're very subdued, we read those lines and we just say, you know, I'd rather not do that. I'll just, I'll just hold my cup of coffee and barely sing. All right, now that I've mad, made most, most of you mad at me, that's not what this sermon's about. But that song is, is all over the Psalter. It's exuberant, joy-filled worship of God. But like I said, there, there's a second song, I think, that's largely missing from our context in worship that that I want us to push into this morning. And rather than tell you what it is, I just want to read it for you. And don't necessarily, you know, I'd actually encourage you not to turn there, to just listen to this song this morning. It's Psalm 42 and 43. It's a song that's all over the Psalter, and yet I don't, I don't think is all over the church today. Here's Psalm 42 and 43. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. My salvation in my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. From the land of Jordan and Hermon, from Mount Mitzar, deep calls to deep, the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? 
Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I probably went to church for 20 years before I heard a song like that. A song of lament, of complaint, of crying out to God. And the reality is that that's not a, a song or a prayer. I think that's very prevalent in the context of our American church today. But the Psalter, the laments, are, are all over the place. In fact, the majority of Psalms are classified as laments, as complaints to God. But we don't. We don't know how. And so I'd say you and I, we need help to enter into this world of worship and singing and prayer that we rarely enter into. Lament. And to let this psalmist, the psalmist of 42 and 43, lead us into that place of lament. Let him be our help, our guide. And let him lead us into the droughts, into the depths, and into the dwelling. The psalm is, is 42 and 43. They're, they're, it's built into three sections that are, are really clear. And the first section is, is what I'll call the droughts. The psalmist begins with this image of a deer panting for water, searching for water, and there is none. Which would have been a very powerful image to those people. That the, the, in that day, in Israel, if it didn't rain for a while, you, you didn't have water. Right? They didn't have faucets like we had. The, the water was a very scarce resource, and if it stopped raining, then these people would have heard the sounds of animals searching for water and dying in the midst of their groans in their search. But a deer panning for streams of water is not a, a peaceful, quiet sound. It's the sound of death. And the psalmist says, I'm, I'm like that. And he, he impacts it further when he says, my tears have been my food day and night. Which means he's not eating, right? His tears are his food. He can't eat. He can't sleep. Day and night he's been awake. There's this restlessness in his soul. So why? Well, the first stanza, he impacts why it's... It's because God doesn't seem real or present to him. Right? In verse 2, he says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I come before God? That everywhere he looks, God isn't there. That God is a personal sense of presence in his life is gone, is absent. And when I hear this, when I read this psalm, there's two questions I want to start asking. And I bet most of us want to start asking. The first one being, well, what sin is he committing? Right, what commandment is he breaking? And yet nowhere in Psalm 42 through 43 does the psalmist confess any sin. Right, even though he's going to get vulnerable, even though he's going to lay his life bare, there never comes this moment when he says, God, this is my fault, I've sinned, forgive me. Right, there were, we were there last week, a psalm of confession, where the psalmist's life was unraveling because he had not confessed his sin. Well, here it's not because of sin. 
And I think that's important for us to hear because I think there's, it's easy for us to assume, you know, if you, don't, if you just keep sin out of your life, your life will work out well. Your Christian life will be full of, of rich blessing. And this psalm is a warning against that mentality. That the lament psalms say that, that thought process is wrong. That there are going to be times in your life when God just seems absent, no matter what you do. And it's not the fault of your sin. It's not, not that you're doing something wrong. It's just the reality of the world you and I live in. The cause of our laments are, are far more complicated than just simply sin. But the, the second question that I tend to ask is, well, is, is the psalmist doing the religious to-do list? Right? Is he praying? Is he reading his Bible? Is he going to church? Is he doing all the religious things? Because if, if you do all the religious things, well, it should work out. You shouldn't feel like this if you are performing the list. And yet again, it's clear the psalmist is performing. He's doing the list. He's praying, right? He's pouring out his soul with an honesty and a transparency few of us do. He's longing to worship with God. He's clearly connected with God's word in some way. And yet everything he does, nothing matters. It, God just seems absent. And I think that's important to hear. I want to start this psalm because I think most of us in this room have this assumption that there's always a button we can push to make everything right. That there's a, we're always in control of our circumstances, Right? If something goes really wrong, well, there's surely someone we can sue. Right? If, if something's broken, yes, it can be fixed. There's always a button to push. And yet the psalmist is pushing every button. And God's absent. Not present is a real reality in his life. As we, as we start into this place of lament, I just want to say, if you're a Christian, you will experience this at some point. Not you might, you will the St. John of the Cross, an ancient Christian, called it the dark night of the soul. That Mother Teresa herself experienced this. And she wrote this to a friend early in her ministry. Please pray especially for me that I may not spoil his work, God's work, and that our Lord may show himself. For there is such terrible darkness within me, as if everything was dead. It has been like this more or less from the time I started the work. Now, I would just say if Mother Teresa experienced this and she couldn't stop it, you don't have much hope. And neither do I. You will experience this dryness, this drought at some point. And so do you see why you need lament? Why we need these prayers, these need, we need these songs? Because in those moments of darkness, the dark night of the soul, we need to pour out our souls that every human being has deep longing that goes unsatisfied. Every human being has unmet expectations or hopes. And in those moments, our souls need pouring out. And the reality is we live in a culture that expects you not to pour out your soul. Right? There are some things we say, pour it out, let us know, be yourself, wear it, be proud, all of that. But in this area, your sadness, your deep laments, your heartache, well, keep that to yourself. And I think the worst part is we in the church have really, I think, subtly preached that message to people. And having been a pastor as long as I've been a pastor, I just, I've seen that in enough, enough people that there's this pressure when you enter into this space, into this church, to say, I have my life together. I'm okay. There's no limit here. I'm fine. Before I went to seminary in my mid-20s, I was a pastor in a church in Indiana. And, and one of the biggest tragedies we faced in in that time was when a, one of our elders um, died suddenly of, of a heart attack. And I know I've told this story before in Olathe, but it's so central to, to who I am as a pastor and what I want us to be about as a church. It's, it's, to me, it's worth telling again. 
And so her, her husband dies, and, and most of his extended family went to our church. Two of his three daughters came to our church. His widow came to our church. And so I was visiting with her a couple weeks after his death. And, and first she apologized for, for not being at church the week before. But then she started, she just gave me a warning. And she said, listen, I'm, I'm just not going to be in church for, for a while. And I asked her why. why. Why not? I mean, she, she went every Sunday. In fact, her and her husband went he had a heart attack Sunday morning. They went to church. He thought he was just sick. He went to, to church after heart. I mean, these, were, these people were at church every week. But now she's telling me, I can't go. I won't be there for a, for a while. I asked her why, and she told me, because if I went, all I would do is, is just cry through the whole service. I don't want to go and be that and do that. And for some reason, 60 years of going to church, she had, it had been communicated to her, if you're going to cry, just, just please don't come. We don't want your tears. I mean, you just lost your husband of, of 50 years, but you know what? Let's it, get it together and then come to church. But that's the message we had communicated to her. And what these Psalms of Lament say is, is no. We are a community that allows space for lament and sadness and tears. We're a space where if there is anywhere for you to bring your lament, it's here in this community, in this place. And the psalmist, right, he, he sort of laments the fact he doesn't have that community anymore at the end of stanza one. Right? He says, I wish I could go to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. Right? He know, his home is with God's people and worshiping his God, and he's not at home anymore. And neither are you or I. We're not at home. Which is why there are moments our souls will need pouring out. Where our, our life will just be a drought, and we will be a deer panting for water, dying of thirst, and God is nowhere to be found. And the Psalms give us language for that moment. They give us a song to sing, a prayer to pray in those moments. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. That's a drought. It's where the psalmist starts. There's no water. And then this, the beginning of the second stanza, in the depths, God is drowning him. Did you catch that? All your waterfalls, your breakers, your waves, they're crashing over me. God, I was drowning, or I was, I was dying of thirst, pleading for you. Now you're drowning me. Right? He flips the metaphor on its head. And as we begin to see now these two stanzas, we, be, we begin to get a full understanding of why the psalmist is lamenting here. What is, what is his... Why he feels this darkness, this sense of foreboding over his life. And the first one that I've already sort of hinted at is that it's, it's he's lost his community. Right? In, in verse 4 he talks about, I used to go with, with the processions into the house of God to worship God. And, and, and here in the second part he says that he's in the land of Jordan and Hermon not near Mount Mitzar. Which just means he's in the north. He's away from Jerusalem, away from Israel, away from his home, away from his family, his friends, away from the temple of God. That he's lost his community, and having lost his community, he feels a despair that's even, even worse. And this is important for you and I to hear, because most Americans have the assumption that you do not need church, or you do not need a religious organization to do spirituality, to do religion. That what matters is you. I heard a study say 80-90% of Christians, of Americans, assume, um, Americans, not Christians, assume you don't need church to, to be a Christian. You don't need church to do religion. And that's a fatal mistake because what the psalmist shows us here is that without community, you are more susceptible to lament and sadness in the dark night of the soul. 
You're more vulnerable without your community than with it. It's why we as a church put so much energy into Sunday mornings, why we stress community groups so much that you don't, you can't just do this Christian life by yourself. You need other people around you, praying for you, encouraging you, lifting you up. And the reality is anytime I've moved away from my Christian community, anytime I've moved into a new place, there's been a, a period of just sadness and lamenting because of the, what I left behind, the friends, the community. That if you lose your community, you are more susceptible to lament, which is why community is so important to the Christian faith. But it's not just the loss of community that's driving his lament. It's also just his life. Right? That twice his enemies surround him and ask, where's your God? Right? Another way of asking is, what kind of God would let this happen to you? What kind of God would let this into your life? And the reality is there's going to be at some point in your life when that happens to you and something comes into your existence, into your life, into your story that is going to wreck your world and make you wonder why in the world would God do something like that? That life will get to you and drive your laments, if not a loss of community. And you'll have nothing in your power to change it. You'll only be able to lament the circumstances of which there's no buttons you can push, there's no problems you can solve. You just have lament. So the psalmist, he's lamenting because he's lost his community, because he, it's just life circumstances. And thirdly, what we've already talked about is, is just God is absent. God is a real presence in his life is gone. And you see this. He gets almost aggressive with this in verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Right, that's an aggressive prayer. I say to God, my rock, there's almost some, I don't know if I want to say sarcasm or irony there. I say to God, my rock, right, my, my fortress, my refuge, why have you forgotten me? You're my rock. Why would you forget me? Why would you leave me here languishing by myself? And the reality is if you, if you read the Psalms, the lament Psalms, they're going to make you uncomfortable. You're going to ask, can I and should I pray that? It sounds like complaining. It sounds like grumbling. And right, if, if you remember a couple months ago, we were in the Exodus story, and there Israel complained and grumbled against God. And God was angry at them and said, don't do that. And he punished them for that. And here it sounds like there's grumbling and complaining, and yet it's a prayer in the Bible to guide us into this life of prayer, saying pray like this in your dark night of the soul. So what's the difference between the grumbling and complaining and lament? Let me give you two just practical things to think about. The difference between lament and complaint. The first, lament acknowledges the not yet. Right? It, doesn't just, it doesn't just stay in your, your present circumstances. It acknowledges things are not as they should be. Now, one of the ironies of this, the psalmist's lament is that he's lamenting the presence of God as being absent from his life. And yet the presence of God at one point was very real and very present in his life. He's, he's lamenting something he's lost. Lamenting something he knows he's going to have again, right? The, the refrain, for I shall again praise him, my salvation, my God. He's had it, he's going to have it, but he doesn't have it now. And lament is not just to say, it's not just to narrow in on your present circumstances. It's to look ahead. God, it's not always going to be like this. So what, what, what's the wait? Why, how long? Can we just skip to that part, God? A lament acknowledges the not yet. And the reality is, though, I, I think... It's easy for us Christians who have tasted 
the life that, that is, if we, our moments of greatest joy of being Christians, or when we read about heaven and we think of the joy to come, it's easy for us to begin to think Christianity is, is just all about my, my, my joy and my happiness. And, and, and a lot of Christians actually preach that explicitly. Right? If you push all the right buttons, you do all the right things, you keep the rules, you, do the right, you live the right way, Christianity is going to make you healthy, wealthy, happy. Right? And that's not just the guys on TV who are, are selling that. It's, it's, I've heard that work its way into so many churches that if you live the Christian, right, light, or the Christian life correctly, your life will be great. And that's, that's just always struck me as, as really ignorant because we're, we follow the one person who actually did everything right. Pushed every button correctly, said every right thing, did everything in the way it should be done, and he ended up on a cross. The Christian life is not a promise to an easy life of joy. It's, it's, it's suffering. Jesus himself promised us that. And Carl Truman, a, a, a theologian, wrote an article to address this gap between what we often preach and what often the Bible teaches about the suffering life of the Christian the article caused quite a stir because it was titled, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? And here's, here's what he said, sort of the gist of his, his argument. A diet of unremittingly jolly choruses and hymns inevitably creates an unrealistic horizon of expectation which sees the normative Christian life as one long triumphalist street party. A theologically incorrect and a pastorally disastrous scenario in a world of broken individuals has an unconscious belief that Christianity is, or at least should be, all about health, wealth, and happiness, silently corrupted the content of our worship. It's a question as a pastor I feel guilty about. I think he has a point here. The lament ultimately is saying, the way things are are not the way they, sh- they should be, and not the way they're going to be. And if that's true, of course we're going to lament. Of course there's going to be dark nights of the soul, sadness, because things are not as they are supposed to be. Right? We live in a world that crucified the Messiah. We live in a world where the God of life has not yet defeated death out of existence. It's still here. Where the God of of healing has not yet eradicated all disease. Where the God of justice has not yet undone all of the injustice in this world. We live in a world of not yet. And that is what is going to drive our lament. But it's not a complaint. It's not grumbling. It starts with the fact, God, you are life. You are just. You are good. You, you don't desire any of these things. So what, what's the weight? The, the, the question all over the psalmist, all over the Psalter is, is how long, O oh Lord? When does the not yet become the is? So that's one practical handle for lament. It acknowledges the not yet. It looks, it looks forward to what's to be, and it looks behind to what was, and it knows what is will not always be. But second, lament is speech to God. Right? It's not speech about God. It's not complaint in general. And that was the, the thing Moses said to the Israelites when they came and grumbled to him. Moses said, why are you talking to me about it? Your complaint is with God. Go to him. Pray to him. Speak to him, not to me. And it's easy for us to, to talk about God, to lament our lives with others and, and speak about the situation, speak about God, but never just take it to God. Which is what the psalmist does all over. God, I remember you from the land of Jordan. Right? When can I come before you? Why have you forgotten me? Why have you rejected me? He's speaking and taking his lament before God. And I think that's the biggest difference between lament and complaint is that you're speaking to God. 
that Dan Allender points out this, this difference between complaint and, and lament this way. He says, it is crucial to comprehend a lament is as far from complaining or grumbling as a search is from aimless wandering. A grumbler has already reached a conclusion. Shut down all desire and postures with questions that are barely concealed accusations. A lament involves the energy to search, not to shut down the quest for truth. It is a passion to ask rather than to rant and rave with already reached conclusions. If the lament is pouring out your soul, saying to God, when? How long? Why? And leaving space for that to be a real question for God to really respond to. The, the complaint is you've already, you've already given up on God. You've already reached conclusions. You already know. You've already answered the questions. Lament is you're really asking the question, God, what are you doing? Why? Now, I hope you see why we need these songs, why we need these laments. One, our, our souls, they need poured out, but they don't just need poured out. Like, it, you know, it's not just driving home today, talking to yourself. It's, it's pouring out your soul to God. That's what lament is. It's pouring out your soul before and to God. And so if you hear anything from me or from us in this Are You Listening series, the Psalms and Prayer, it's this. It's that I would hope that your prayer life would be everything that's really in your heart. You would pray up to God. You'd pray it out. You don't hold it back. You don't tie it in a bow. You don't make it look better than what it is. You pray it out and let it out to God, before God. It's only then, it's only in that space where you can begin to take in these songs of lament, and they're not just despairing. They have that. They have the turmoil. They have the sadness, but they also have the hope. Right? We hear that in the refrain, don't we? Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. If that's our prayer in the, the drought, it's our prayer in the depths. And finally, the, the last stanza, the psalmist goes to, to, to the dwelling. And what's interesting is, is throughout this psalm, the, the psalmist is, he's pouring out his soul. He's laying it bare, he's honest, he's vulnerable, he's raw before God. But there's a moment, there's four of them in the, in the, the psalm where he basically says, all right, you've, you've lamented enough, now shut up and listen. Be quiet, soul. Right? It was sort of in verse 8 where he's, he's saying, God, you're drowning me. Your waves, your breakers, you're, you've gone over me. Then verse 8 is, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love. At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Like, there's this moment where he says, okay, you're drowning. Be quiet. Focus. Listen. God loves you. Right? And then he, it's not enough yet, though. He, keeps, he goes back to lamenting right after that. Right? And there's this, this refrain then, too, where he finishes his, his lament, and then he asks himself two questions. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Right? Listen, lament is pouring out your soul, but there's a moment when you say, be quiet. Listen. Soul, you've had plenty of time to speak. And even if God seems absent, and even if God isn't speaking to me in this moment, I'm going to speak for him. I'd hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Right? That, that's him preaching to himself. And if you're going to pray your laments, if you're going to lament out to God, it's why, it's why we've made the case you need to know the Bible well or you need to know God well so that you can grab onto those promises even when they're not real or present to you. You grab onto those promises and they become things you speak to yourself in the midst of your lament. Hope in God. 
You praised him once. You're going to praise him again. He's promised that to you. And in the midst of your lament, you just say, be quiet. Soul, you've been poured out. It's time for me to speak. So you can pour out your soul before God. And as you do that, speak back the gospel into your heart. Because the gospel is true in the drought, whether you feel it or not. It's true in the depths, whether you feel it or not. God loves you and his promises are true, whether we experience them as real or feel them as real or not. And yet, this lament, these prayers, these songs, they're unavoidable to us. You will experience this at some point in the Christian life. And I've given you lots of reasons, but the reason that above all the other reasons is that you and I, we are not home. We are not in the place we were built for. And we've all felt that moment, right? Even at the end of a really good vacation where suddenly you're just like, I just want to go back home. Or I don't care about the mountains or the beach or this is great, I'm tired of it. I want to go back to my bed, my routine, my family. Like, I just want, I want back there. The, the, one of the, the best vacations I took was, was a, a early, early 20s. We went on our West Coast road trip. The 20th day, we got to Glacier National Park. And the three of us, we all agreed it was the most beautiful place we'd been. Best mountains, glaciers. Uh, we saw a grizzly bear and her cubs. I mean, it was just an amazing place. And I recommend you go there. But it was the end of 20 days. And it didn't matter how great everything was around us. We wanted to go back home. And so we got in our car. We just looked at each other after a few hours there and just said, I'm tired. Let's go, let's go home. And we got in the car and we drove 32 hours from Montana back to Indianapolis straight because we wanted home that bad. And if you're a Christian, you should have that longing. And if you have that longing, you're going to lament. Because this is not the place you and I were built for. And yet, one reason I think we, we struggle to lament is because you and I are, are, we're at most, we're probably in the most dangerous position of anyone in the world to mistake this place for home. That, for example, C.S. Lewis said that the best things in our lives become idols. And become things that begin to distract us from God. And you think about the, the culture in which you and I live in. The prosperity, the health, the technology, the access we have, the, 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 the incredible blessings we live under. It is most easy for you and I in our context to look at all of our life and say, you know, my life's pretty good without any reference to God whatsoever. And I think many of us, whether you're a Christian or not, live practically that way without God in the forefront of our mind. And the reason we never pray Psalm 42 and 43 is because we never have this sort of longing for the presence and the experience of God because we're too satisfied on good things but that, that are not God. Blessings God has sent us, but they are not himself. And so we, we are satisfied in living off of lesser things. That you and I, of any people, we are in most danger to, to mistake this place for home. And yet there are moments in all of our lives when the reality of our restlessness, that we're in exile, that we are not at home, it breaks in at some point, doesn't it? Like, should a home have cancer? Should a home have, have death? Should a home be without a father? If there are moments it breaks through, right, that we sense... For all the, the joy we have in our life, this isn't it. This isn't home. And the psalmist speaks to that. And you and I, we have to feel that. This is not our home. That's the first danger, but there's a second danger with lament. And that is it's just the reality of doubt. That we need light to get home. 
But the, the, in verse 3 is, is maybe my favorite verse. It, the psalmist says, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre of God, my God. He's basically saying, I'm sitting in darkness, and I can't get back to you without light. You're going to have to light the way, God. And all of us at some point will have doubts. Whether you are a, an amazing Christian with incredible faith, at some point you're going to have a doubt. Mother Teresa had it, you're going to have it. Or if you don't believe, if you're not a Christian, you have doubts, right? You, have, you look at things and you say, there's no way there's a God beyond that. And what the psalmist is saying is, is in those spaces, you're in darkness and you need to ask for light. Whether you're a Christian or not, you need to ask for light. Because the irony here of this lament, and I would say any lament, is that behind the lament, behind the doubt, is God himself. The doubt and faith, they're not contradictory things. Often doubt is the absence of what is yet to be. I mean, think about the psalmist's own doubt here. It's that God doesn't feel real or present to him. And yet the reason God doesn't feel so present or real to him is because he knows one day God will be that present and real to him. And that he was that present and real in the past. That was, that's what it was like. It's what it will be. And so behind the doubt is God. And I, listen, if you're not a Christian, I, I don't care what your doubt is. I guarantee you pull on that thread. And whether you can believe it or not, behind that thread is, is God himself. Behind that doubt is, is the absence of God's fullness in this world today. If, if, your, problem, if your doubt is, is the presence of evil and how could God let this, this place be like this? Well, behind that question is that there's a good that there should be in this world that's not yet. Behind that doubt is God. Which is why in our doubts, in our darkness, we need to ask for light. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. And yet... The reality is there's a question, which is how, how do you keep lamenting and not give up hope, not give in to your doubts, not fall prey to this being your home? How do you keep lamenting and not give up? Right? There's raw stuff here. How do you not, not give in? The psalmist goes to the same place in every, each of the stanzas. He goes to the altar and to the temple. Right? He went there in, in verse Four of chapter 42, right? I, I used to go to the procession to the house of God. Glad shouts and songs of praise. Then the second stanza, he talks about being away from the temple in, in the land of Jordan and Hermon. God, if I could just get back there to your altar, to your dwelling. And here it's where the psalmist ends his last stanza. God, if you send out your light, I'm going straight to your presence, right to your altar and right to your temple. And I would say if that psalmist grabbing onto that temple, that dwelling and that altar got him through his lament, then we have an altar and a dwelling and a temple to grab onto as Christians that's far better than his. Because our altar is not an altar where we go and make the sacrifice before God, but where God has come and brought the sacrifice for us in his own son, Jesus Christ. That our altar is not in a temple, it's a cross and it's a person, Jesus. And even more powerful than that for us who do lament is that the center of the Christian faith is God lamenting from a cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that lament, Jesus is inviting us to bring our laments to him for two reasons. One, because on that cross he said it is finished and everything you lament one day will be done away with and gone and joy will replace it. But more importantly, Jesus is saying bring your laments to me because I have light. I can bring you and lead you home. I'm the light of the world. 
And in the place of, of drought, he's the water of life. In the depths, when the waves and breakers go over us, he can calm any storm. And he is our dwelling, our resting place, our home. And until we are in him, we're not yet home. So we lament. We cry out. We pray. We ask that what is not yet will be. But it's not without hope. It's not without joy. And so we can sing this refrain of this psalm differently than the psalmist even could, with a conviction and a confidence that not even the psalmist could, and yet also with a brokenness and a sadness that not even the psalmist could, because we see both the broken Christ on his cross, and we see the empty tomb on the other side of the grave. And so we can sing with conviction and with hope and joy, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are God who, whether we feel your presence or whether you feel absent, we can come in confidence knowing you have given your own son for us. And so I pray now, Father, that you would be near to us. God, for those who aren't in a space of, a space of lament and their life is exuberant praise and joyful worship, I, just, I thank you that they are there. For those of us in a space of lament, I pray this psalm would give us words and give us a prayer to pray in dark days. And would you meet us now in worship? We ask these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. One of the ways we, we respond to this God who invites us to pray to him is through communion. Right, it's, it's here we remind, are reminded it's his body broken for us, it's his blood shed for us. And we come to the, to the lamenting Savior who's victorious over all that, that would defeat us. And so we practice open communion here. If you're a Christian, we invite you to come and receive this meal. Come in groups of four to six. Uh, take the bread, dip it into the juice, and eat it together at the instruction of your leader. We have a gluten-free option available on this side if, if that's your presence or, or preference. And we invite you to come as, as you're ready to receive this meal and this promise from Christ.